and uh, we'll be doing that this evening. We're looking at Psalm 13 this evening, just if you want to get some headspace around that beforehand. Let's remember the team that have gone out this week to Serbia. They flew out from Luton Airport yesterday, arrived in Belgrade. Yes, you turned on. Not turned on. That's better. Not working. Thank you, Paul. Sorry. That's the first time that's happened. I've had one of the deacons come and do something while I'm about to preach. There we are. It's the first time for everything, isn't there? There we go. Yeah, remember the team that's gone out to Serbia? Um, Phil, Dave, Abby, Evie and Matt have joined them as well. They arrived in Belgrade. They're staying in the church in Versace and uh, let's keep them in prayer this week. They have an incredibly busy week, Saturday to Saturday. I think it's going to be even hotter there than here. So let's pray for health and safety and all the rest of it. And I said we need to pray for the other half of their teams that are back here. Let's remember uh, their other halves that uh, are back here serving as well. One thing as well, we, the, some of us met with uh, two candidates who've applied for the pastorate here um, to join the pastoral staff team of the church here. We had a, a, a very good day with two candidates on Tuesday. So those of you who have been aware of that and praying for us in that, thank you for that. Um, They were two outstanding candidates that the Lord um, brought and we had fellowship with. Um, We're going to move forward at this stage with one particular chap. His name's Tim Diaper. He'll be coming to Diaper, pardon me, D-I-A-P-E-R. He knows how you're going to pronounce it anyway. Um, But he'll be coming to spend the day with us on Sunday the 1st of September. So I'll put a letter out to the members this week as well, so that you're aware of that. But please keep that in prayer as well. God is ever so kind to us. So we're going to turn to God's Word, and the text that I'm going to uh, preach from this morning is on the screen behind me, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Let's pray and ask God's help as we tackle this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would teach us how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, how God, how Christ-exalting it is, to obey you, and to obey you in the power of the Spirit for the right reasons. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Is it a good thing to obey God? Yeah. I would suggest that you're here because you think it's a good thing to obey God. Let me ask you another question. Is it important to understand why you want to obey God? Okay, let me ask you another question. Which is more important, obeying God or understanding why you want to obey God? Oh, that's a hard question, isn't it? That made you think, didn't it? Which is more important, understanding why you want to obey God or obeying God? The text that we have this morning shows us that obeying God is vitally important And I would want to press that it's even more important than that, is understanding why you are trying to obey God. It's literally a matter of life and death. Understanding why. Why do I say that? It is is very possible that there could be two people in this church seeking to obey God, to do the right things, 
but for two totally opposite reasons and two totally opposite motives. It's scarily possible that these two people could be literally sat next to each other in this service this morning, singing God's praises, praying, studying the Bible together, serving in the church, taking communion, which we will do in a moment, around the Lord's table, and, ser- and share, wanting to share your faith in the community, and to be motivated <coughs> by two radically different reasons. Where do we get that from? One person may be striving to obey and please God in order to work for their salvation. The other person may be striving to obey and please God in order to work out their salvation. They are totally 180 opposed motivations. One is working for their salvation, another is working out their salvation. And only one is right. Religion says... I obey God, therefore I am accepted by him. Christianity says, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey him. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You God-obeying evildoers. That's scary. That is terrifying. Obeying God is certainly evidence of something, but why you want to obey God, what motivates your obedience, I believe is what really matters. So the text reads, therefore my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There are three things I want to draw out from this text for us this morning to prepare our hearts to come around the Lord's table. Paul shows his readers what obeying Jesus actually is. It is radical worship. He shows us secondly what obeying Jesus actually does to you. It completely transforms you. And he shows us what obeying Jesus flows from. What's the energy? What's the motivation? What's the power that enables Christians to obey Jesus, radically worship him, transform them? It is from God's work. So let's think about the text this morning and think about what obeying Jesus is. It's radical worship. Look at verse 17. I'm not going to do it verse by verse per se. I just want to pick out some highlights for us. Look at verse 17. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Paul is showing us that obeying Jesus is radical worship. I don't think we've had a time of worship this morning. I think we've had a time of praise. I think radical worship 
is obedience to Christ. It's an all-of-life thing. And it's literally, as Paul says, it's a life poured out. You've got that tagline on the slide behind me. My life for yours, not your life for mine. That's a gospel principle that, un- that God writes into our souls. That's what motivated Jesus. My life for yours, not your life for mine. And Paul says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering. It's fascinating that this first European church, he uses something that was Old Testament very Jewish. I'll explain what the drink offering was. But I think he must have explained the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament as part of his church planting work there anyway as a Bible teacher. The drink offering was an Old Testament offering to God. And the first reference to the drink offering we have is in Genesis 35, 14. It occurs after Jacob wrestled all night with this mysterious character that we discover was the Lord. And in that wrestling match, the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. Because you have wrestled with man and with God and have prevailed. And God touched his hip. The Lord touched his hip and dislocated his hip and he walked with a limp thereafter and after that wrestling match with the Lord Jacob made a sacrifice to the Lord and he poured out a drink offering what had happened to Jacob in his life and that culminated that wrestling match that so transformed him Jacob had become a true worshipper and he's saying in the act of pouring out the drink offering on the altar On the sacrifice, I am pouring out my life for you. My life is poured out. In other words, Jacob had become a provider, not a consumer. We do live in a consumeristic age, don't we? Where we're in it for what we can get out of it. Consumerism is rampant. And by the way, it's infected every one of us. That's the air we breathe. That's the culture we live in. But Christian worship, as Paul shows us here, is like a drink offering poured out, where you become a provider, not a consumer. Now, drink offerings were part of the Old Testament services of worship, and they were presented morning and evening as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You can find that reference in Exodus 29:41. Now, Paul is disusing the poured-out drink offering as a metaphor describing his own life, which is poured out to the Lord. And I would suggest that is radical worship. That is radical worship. Notice what he says also in the second half of the verse. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Again, in the Exodus 29 reference... The drink offering shows us that that it was actually to be poured out over the sacrificial lamb that was on the altar. So the lamb had been slain. The lamb was now put on the altar to be burnt in the fire, symbolizing God's wrath consuming an innocent victim in the place of the guilty sinner. And the worshiper poured out a drink offering on on the lamb that was being consumed in the fire. And the worshipper was so identifying that someone else, something else had taken their place on the altar. They were going to pour out their life in response to that. 
And Paul, fascinatingly, identifies his poured out life with the Philippians. Because the obedience that the Philippians were giving to Jesus was the sacrifice and service that was coming from their faith. Faith in who? Faith in the Lord Jesus himself, because we learn in chapter 1 and verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. That's the gift that God has given every true Christian, the gift to believe on Christ but also, not just that gift, but to suffer for him. Faith in Jesus, who, as we learn in chapter 2, was in very nature God, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, which John mentioned, which John talked to us about last week. We'll be coming around the Lord's table at the end of this service, and this is what Jesus says, particularly in Matthew 26, when he instigates the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Paul wants to show us here that true Christian obedience is radical worship. It is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. We'll come to that in a moment. And it flows out from the supreme, once-for-all, self-sacrifice of Jesus. And it leads to radical worship as our lives, in partnership with other Christians who love the gospel, who love the Lord, we, like Paul, are being poured out like drink offerings on the sacrifice and service of other people's faith. It is radical worship. And the world has not seen the like of it. Which is why obeying Jesus completely changes you. Obeying Jesus increasingly and progressively makes you more like Jesus, which is what Paul develops here from 12 onwards. He develops the points he's been making in chapter 2, 1 through 5 with the therefore, if you have any encouragement, etc. And he begins another therefore in verse 12. And he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Well, he answers that in the next phrase. For it is God who works in you. We'll come back to that a bit later. But what does that mean, fear and trembling? That's not, that's not popular 21st century evangelical speak, is it? Fear and trembling. We want to be happy. We want to be joyful. We want to be free. We don't want to. What's this fear and trembling stuff? What does it mean? It means, I would suggest, that we have such a high view of God, such a high view of what God has done for us. In, in very nature, God did not consider equality with God. Look at what God has done for us. Look at who God is. I was, by the way, I do love that this is a, by the way, this is not in my notes, so here we go. I do love, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I love that hymn. I love that. I think it's a great hymn. Great song. Glad we sang it. I do not think in pity 
angels beheld him. I do not think any angel ever felt pity for God Almighty. I think they were so moved by what he was about to do in the agony he experienced in Gethsemane, God sent them to minister to him. They did not feel sorry for him at all about what he was about to accomplish. Even angels, says Peter, long to look into these things. I don't think they felt sorry for him a bit. They worshipped him. Fear and trembling. It means that you have such a high view of God and such a love for him and an increasing sense, not only of how great and glorious God is, but how sinful you are, that so that you fear to offend him, and therefore you take his word very seriously. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the Lord says through Isaiah, this is the one I esteem, the one who trembles at my word. Does the word of God make you tremble? Does the sin in your life make you you hate the sin because you're offending such a holy, self-giving, self-sacrificing, all-loving God? Fear and trembling are the evidence that you are working out your salvation. How are you doing? How are you doing? Notice what he says at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I'm going to steal a well-known preacher's illustration. So there is no copyright on it because the Lord, he's taken and gone to be with the Lord. This is John Newton's illustration on this particular verse. Okay? But I have modernized it. This is my, the 21st century tweak of John Newton's illustration. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now here's the thing. Imagine that you had received a copy of the last will and testament of an incredibly wealthy relative of yours. And you'd received a covering letter from his lawyer. And you were invited by the family lawyer who'd sent you a copy of your incredibly wealthy relative's last will and testament to invite you to a meeting at the Ritz Hotel in London so that you could claim your inheritance. So you're pretty excited. You've got the letter. You've got the last will and testament. You've been left billions, right? You're inheriting billions. You get on the train. You get off the train at King's Cross. You, get, you wave a taxi down. You, you get in the taxi. Now the traffic's building up. And it's starting to pour with rain. And you're literally three quarters of a a mile away from the Ritz Hotel and the traffic is just gridlocked and the taxi breaks down. And the taxi driver says, in his best London accent, sorry mate, you're going to have to walk from here. It's only three quarters of a mile down the road. Be all right. Can you imagine, as you're walking down the road, in the pouring rain, because the taxi's broken down, would you be grumbling and arguing that it's not fair that you've got to walk the last three quarters of a mile to claim your inheritance? It's ridiculous, isn't it? You'd walk with joy. You really would. We've We've got an inheritance that is worth far, far, far more than that. We inherit God. God is our inheritance. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. The infinite, internal Son of God. The sin of grumbling and arguing, which infected and infested and destroyed 
the Old Testament believers who came out of Egypt, not only two of them made it to the promised land. Why? Because of the repeated grumbling and arguing that beset them. That was their besetting sin. And they all died in the wilderness. They never made it home to the Ritz Hotel. They never got there. Why? The way we kill the sin of grumbling and arguing in our hearts and lives is by focusing on who Jesus is and what it cost him personally to write your name in his last will and testament. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Verse 18, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's another, that's another transformation. Fear and trembling is now part of our experience. L- grumbling and arguing is being burnt off in the, in the, in the glorious white-hot heat of our adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ and all he's go- done for us and all he's promised us when we get to glory. No wonder Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, which is, I long to be home and be, which is to be with him, which is far better. He knew what was coming in some way or other. I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So there are two those emotions of glad and rejoicing. Because grumbling and arguing are burned off in the heat of our gladness and rejoicing. Because, why? Because it is becoming increasingly obvious to our unbelieving family and our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving work colleagues and our unbelieving neighbours, that we are actually children of God. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. True Christian worship is radical worship and it is so radical it changes you from the inside out you become a whole new person your your emotional life is transformed so how are you changing as you radically worship Jesus through your poured out life so where do we get the power to obey Jesus Because this is supernatural obedience. This is impossible, humanly speaking. Put it another way, what force is there in the cosmos that is so strong that we will be motivated so deeply that we are empowered to worship Jesus as befits him? Because Paul says, obeying Jesus only happens because God works. Because God has done something to you and in you. Verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Let me just stop there. Not go any further on the if you, if any. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. I was talking to a, a, a Christian earlier this week and they told me that the most growth they've experienced the most transforming growth in their lives and the most sin-killing ability in their lives and and being transformed more and more into Jesus in their lives when they have meditated on and 
and, and allowed the truth of what it means to be united with Christ into their souls. Not just a phrase in their Bible, but a reality in their souls. We thought about that last Sunday evening when we had three guys baptized. What does it mean to be united with Christ? It's a fascinating terminology that Paul uses in the New Testament. It literally means to be conjoined with Christ. It literally means to be conjoined with him, inseparably conjoined with him. You are united in Christ, according to the New Testament, before the creation of the world. Get your brain around that one. What does that mean, practically speaking? It means that Jesus' past becomes your past. That's what we're celebrating around the Lord's table. The past life of Jesus becomes your life. The sinless perfection of Jesus' obedience becomes yours. Because you're joined at the hip with him. You're literally, supernaturally, eternally joined with him. His present becomes your present. Where is Jesus now? He's ascended and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So are you. If you're a Christian. Jesus' future becomes your future. When he comes back and every knee sees him and every, every mouth exalts him. Where the whole cosmos is exalting Christ. That's his future. That's yours. Doesn't that encourage you? Whatever you're facing right now. God has done that. God has done something to you. He's united you with his son forever. Secondly, because God is doing something in you. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is working in you to change you. What's he working on? He's working on your will. He's working in you to, to align your will with his will. That's one of the purposes of prayer. Prayer isn't me beating you know, the, the piñata hanging down from the ceiling with my prayer stick or running it around the prayer wheel until the blessings fall down. It's to align me with God's will. God who works in you to will to, and also to act. God is changing your will, my will, in line with his will. And God is changing the actions that flow out of the changed will to align with his self-giving love in action on the cross. That's what he's doing. He's making our lives more and more map onto the life and death of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's done something to you. He's doing something in you. What's God's purpose? But he tells, in order to fulfill his good purpose. What is God's purpose for your life? We want to know that, don't we? 
What is God's purpose for my life? Let me give you a word from the Lord. It is to exalt Christ. You exist to exalt Christ. Verse 9. This is God's good purpose. Therefore, because of all that Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. The exaltation of Christ is God's good purpose. You exist to exalt Christ. God is in the business of exalting Christ. Why did God create the, the entire universe? Why did God create all this something out of nothing? To exalt Christ. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are in the business of exalting Christ. And Paul got it. He says in, in chapter one twenty. I eagerly expect and hope that I will no, be, no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. That's God's purpose for you. The exaltation of Christ. This is where the power comes from. Obeying Jesus only happens because God has done something to you, and only happens because God is doing something in you and because God is doing something through you. Verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So why Paul talks about then I'll be able to boast, verse 16, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Because there will be many people whom these Christ-exalting Philippians are also now exalting Christ and will be glad on the day of Christ when he comes back. They won't be damned, they'll be saved. Because many, many people through our poured-out lives, our Christ-exalting poured-out lives are brought to bow the knee and confess the name that is above every name. This is the power of Christ to empower us to keep on keeping on obeying him so that he is exalted above all. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good, Christ-exalting purpose. Let us pray. Father, thank you for showing us the beauty, the wonder, the glory of what it means to obey you. Thank you that obeying you is radical worship. Obeying you transforms us more and more 
to become publicly seen as, known as, children of the living God. Blood-bought, spirit-filled children of the Most High. So that, whether by our lives or by our deaths, Christ is exalted. Make that a reality for everyone in this room, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we come around the Lord's table, we're going to sing, Behold the Lamb. That will come up on the screen.